Hey, I am so fired up to be here. I think I was here, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago for the, the campus training program. Nine years ago. Okay, fair enough. It was at Kennesaw State at the time. And I said, Kennesaw, what? But you know what? Nobody says that anymore. And it's not because that, um, that university institution has grown in stature. It's because you all have put it on the map as a, just a place of just faith and to, to be able to see what it is that, that God's been doing. So amen for that. Anyway, this is so encouraging to look out and see this many people rearranging your lives just to try to be all the better equipped to be able to serve Jesus. Bravo. Way to go. It's really encouraging. Uh, so we're going to talk now about this whole idea about changing the culture. And, you know, I think, my goodness, Tom and Kelly have been so influential in really, I think, uh, capturing what was the best ever of our <coughs> campus ministry culture. Uh, really personifying that, just seeing the kind of the unbridled love, enthusiasm, just let the spirit flow, mad flow of, of God, you know, kind of coming through, the enjoyment of all of that, and, and to make sure that that's never been lost. You know, and Tom was not a young man in 2006, neither was I. But nonetheless, as, as a man that had been out of kind of everyday campus ministry for a while, he's held on to it. And, and I really do think, praise God for, for the sake of, of our greater fellowship, um, that you all have done that because you have, have kept... That, that, that burning ember of the campus ministry really glowing brightly until it has now really, I think, come into full flame. And we're, we're seeing that throughout, throughout all of our churches. That didn't just happen by accident. That happened because certain people, and, and especially right here, you, we owe a big debt of thanks to uh, for, for keeping that going. So pra praise God for that. Uh, but there are times in all of our campus ministries, right? I mean, right now we've had some campus ministries that have been thriving for, for, for maybe 10 years plus, you know, great upslope again. But it's not as though everything's just kind of, a, you know, a hockey stick upward uh, on the graph. You know, there, there are kind of peaks and valleys along the way there. And you may even be sitting here right now saying, well, you know, we're not necessarily heading in this direction right now. We're graduating this many people. I don't know who's coming in. Here's the faithfulness of our group. Ah, what's to do? There's kind of world coming in. Kingdom kids are not kind of, you know, kind of clicking in the way that they're supposed to be. You may be one of those. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, we, we really do have to be super keen in our awareness of what is the culture of my campus ministry. Now, the church is supposed to be a counterculture. And interestingly, when churches were constructed, if you go on, like, let's say Google Maps and you look up uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and, and then you kind of look at the coordinates on your Google map of that, you'll notice that the cathedral is lined up perfectly so that when you walk into it, you end up facing dead east. And that's called being oriented. And that's what churches are meant to do. They're meant to reorient the people who come into it. And even though your lives may be heading in different directions, when you come into the body of Christ, we're all meant to be reoriented, not necessarily towards Jerusalem. The, the real reason why this reorientation uh, really came to be with churches is because of Matthew 24, where it says, just as lightning uh, appears in the east and is visible even in the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. 
I, I forget where that is. It might be Matthew 24, 47, but somewhere in that neighborhood. You rummage around a bit. I'm sure you'll read some other good stuff along the way. But, <laughs> but what a cool thought, though, isn't that? Isn't that I, I think that's such a cool thought. Normally, you know, having grown up Catholic, I'm like, crap, I get a cathedral, cathedral. You know, <laughs> you know what, what a waste. I've been to Rome. It was you know, horrible. But, but I mean, opulent to the degree you're like, oh, really? Like, how about a building like this? This is kind of, you know, it's functional. It does the work of God. That's what I'm talking about. You know, instead of everything else that goes, but, but then, but then realizing, no, but what, the one cool aspect is, I like that. I like that we're all meant to be coming out of the world and being brought into alignment where we live each day in hopeful anticipation of the reappearing of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that all our days are now live, li, are, are, we, we live now with that as that guiding orientation that we're doing this all because Jesus is coming back. How exciting is this? I live in hopeful anticipation. Every, I work for, 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 for the Lord in hopeful anticipation because of that. But what happens when the church gets off skew? What happens when your ministry no longer is living that way? And that when people come into your ministry... It's not as though they're being reoriented anymore. What, what used to be an orientation of your ministry has now gone from only looking at the Lord to now looking at too much stuff in the world or in five other different directions as well, rather than just that laser beautiful focus on the anticipation of the coming to the Lord. Well, when that happens, interestingly, uh, there's a, a great hope for it scripturally, and it is repentance. But it's corporate repentance. But now you hear, let's say I were to kind of just say to you, you know what, I want to talk to you today about your need to repent. Right? If I said that to you, would you process that in your brain with the idea of I need to repent or we need to repent, mm -hmm. if you heard that? I bet you process it as I need to repent. Right. Now, you may or may not need to repent, probably to some way, way or another you do. But the fact that that's our default, we immediately go to, oh, he must be talking about uh, this you know, episode in my life. Uh, but actually, scripturally, you would be really surprised that the bulk of scripture focuses on repentance as a communal sport rather than an individual sport. Uh, unbelievably so. But we don't hear it. We don't see it. There's a variety of reasons. Uh, number one is we live in the most individualistic nation at the most individualistic time on the history of the earth. And we just breathe individualism. We don't even realize the depth to which we, we are the rugged individualists who made our way to create America as it is. And a lot of, a lot of great c comes from that, of course. But there's also blinders. How do you, you know, the, the good old saw, how do you tell a fish it's in water? You, you can't. How do you tell an American they're an individualist? There's, there's no way to kind of, you know, help to kind of open our eyes to help us even realize that. Let me just, before I get into the, the depth of the lesson, just give you an example. Luke 11, the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him to be taught to do something. Anybody remember what it was? Sure. What was the question they asked? Teach us to pray. If you came up to Jesus, and he you know, was the guest uh, trainer all of a sudden, and, and you came up to Jesus, and you said, hey, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And he looked at you, and he would then probably ask you, who's your us? 
you got this prayer group going on that, that you guys have like kind of hit up against the wall? Like when, when you get together and you've been giving it your all in prayer that it's, it's just not kind of where it used to be anymore? Uh, what, what's, you know, t- tell me the dynamic within your group when you pray uh, and, and how it is that, that you, you need this sort of help. You'd be like, oh, humana, humana, humana. I guess I'm asking teach me to pray. Right? But then when he teaches them to pray, think of this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Right? Uh, forgive us our sins that we have forgiven those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. All of it's first person plural, but we live our lives first person singular. So realize that going into this, we are handicapped from being able to get the help from Scripture that Scripture does provide. Because we take all that plural stuff and we make it all singular. If I were to say to you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, what would you be thinking I was saying in, my, in, in quoting the Bible that way? And how do you hear that? Do you hear that singular when I said it? Or did you hear it plural? You did hear it singular. It's one of the most communal plural sections of Scripture in our Bible in Philippians. And all of it is plural you. Now, here's the second. I said there was one thing. One is our culture. Number two, there's another thing that just mitigates, uh, mitigates against us ever being able to hear the, the, the real thrust of Scripture being about plural. And that is that we are blessed with the English language or cursed with it because in English, unlike any other language, you, all the passages that say you, we don't know if it's plural or singular. Right. In English, the second person pro- personal pronoun doesn't change from singular to plural. So we're, we're totally whack either way because we can't even like, have that to help us out. Like, oh, see, he's actually saying all you all instead of just saying you in, in this particular circumstance. But know this, if, 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 if in doubt and you're looking at these you's, especially when letters written to churches, it is all you all. Almost every single time, again and again and again. Work out your common salvation with fear and trembling. That's what all y'all really are being told to do in situations like that. So uh, with that, I think also to realize that, my goodness, my campus ministry needs to be much less a collection of individuals and much more now a really a cohesive real deep bond that that really needs to be in the body of Christ. But so nonetheless, we, we still want to... Kind of, all I want to get to the, the, the nitty-gritty today is in the how. How do you actually affect culture change in a ministry? Uh, culture change is so paramount. Oh, my goodness. I, I spent uh, 10 years in campus ministry in, in Hampton Roads at UVA. Uh, I've also discipled the, uh, many of the, the campus leaders uh, throughout the ACR region of churches. And the one thing that we talk about on every phone call is, are you protecting the culture? And you might maybe heard this quote from from uh, Peter Drucker that you know you can talk about oh we got this strategy to take the campus we've got this strategy to raise up the leaders we've got this strategy well you can have strategies all day long but the quote is culture eats strategy for breakfast I mean that's how massive culture is so how how do you how do you help that uh, first of all let me just to get a little bit deeper into this lens of individualism by which we are trying to read our Bibles. Uh, if we just looked at passages in the Bible on repentance and tried to guess what percentages of, percentage of those charges to repentance, Old and New Testament, 
um, were plural versus singular, you would be rather surprised. And I did go through when, when I was writing the repentance book years ago and, and tried to look up. It is 91% of the passages throughout the Bible on repentance are plural. They are calls to nations, to groups, to Pharisees, to churches to collectively repent as, a, as an organism, as a corporate entity, one, one way or another. Uh, I mean, imagine that. Now, there, there, there are a variety of, of corporate um, entities. And, and I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, even, even, you know, a group like this, a committee, ends up having a, a corporate culture at some point in time. You can think of it as a group dynamic, a team spirit, community climate, ethos. Uh, you've, you've been on teams. You've been in classrooms. You've been in groups. You've been in your family where you've even probably seen the culture change for maybe better or worse or back to better again at different times. You know this to be the case. You can just feel it or sense it. C.S. Lewis writes this about it. He says, you know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trades union, people talk about the spirit of that family club or trades union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they're together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving that they wouldn't have if they were apart. This corporate behavior may, of course, be either better or worse than their individual behavior. And then, I love what he writes here as he concludes this little passage. It is as if a sort of communal personality has come into existence. Mm. Of course, it isn't a real person, but it is like a real person. And your campus ministry, it's, it's like a real person. Somebody, your Bible talk within your campus ministry, it has... A personality to it and it is a corporate entity of some sort or another and that's what I want to talk about today about being able to affect the change not just kind of an individual change here we're, we're all right with that we, we got that down but how do you go about really effectively changing an entire Bible talk or campus ministry in some cases you make up a large part of even even a church well the ultimate corporate entity is the body of Christ Corpus Christi, corporate entity. Corp corporal just simply means body. The ultimate body entity is us. We are the body of Christ. I mean, look at how, how we are described. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. By the way... That should be our corporate personality, our corporate culture. If you're going to, well, what should be our culture? Praise God that he gave us a time capsule called the Book of Acts that you can open up any year you want to open up and look back and see what was the body of Christ, this corporate entity, meant to be in its culture. And, and back we go. And, and every single time that you read it and every single time that you pursue it, you are never left wanting. You are always left, hallelujah, praise God, that not only do we see this, but actually through his spirit, he enabled us to get back to this very place. And, and every time that we've ever gone after that, we've always, always sung the praises of God as a result of that. But, of course, we're not always there. And it's interesting, in, in Amos uh, 7, there's a kind of an, an interesting passage there that, that talks about the prophet coming and putting a plumb line down 
amidst the city to be able to see whether people were aligned with God or not. Uh, and, and that's what a plumb line does in any sort of a, a building or any sort of a project, is you, you put down the plumb line and you see if something is righteous or rightly aligned or justified. Justified, you know, my page right here is left justified and right justified, right? So, I mean, the, the word actually means that as well, but it, but it does mean... Is it, is it aligned? Is, do you have a justified, righteous corporate culture in your ministry? If the prophet Amos were to come by with the plumb line and to, and to kind of line it up and see how do you line up with Acts 2.42, what does it look like? Would it see like, wow, look at that, right along the line there, or have we gotten off kilter? Have we allowed the gravitational pull of the earth to kind of skew what it is that our campus ministry is really all about? versus really aligning ourselves with what we've got here in the time capsule. Now, there's, um, th th there's this philosopher guy, uh, Georg Hegel, who years ago did a lot of writing in Germany on societal evolution. He's not a godly man, by the way, and he is completely unreadable. But he did come up with a really cool visual image, and, and I don't know where that Johnny Appleseed came from, but nonetheless. <laughs> but he says that when any society gets kind of off kilter, they get to a place, and you've got to try to describe what that is. And so you come up with a thesis. And this state, he calls, thesis, where society goes to. And, he, and, and his proposition is, is that normally society doesn't just go from thesis back to kind of plumb or back to the, the right place. Normally what happens is, like physics, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And that unfortunately, society tends to swing not to there, but all the way over to here to a state that he calls antithesis or antithesis. So normally we swing from thesis and then you have the good old classic pendulum swing all the way over to antithesis. But in his study of societies over time, he studied all the great societies, he says there's great hope because as society continues to advance, they go from thesis to antithesis to ultimately a place that is able to kind of be once bitten, twice shy, learn from their mistakes, and come to a place that, that he would then call synthesis. Or synthesis is, that, you know, to, is the coming together of the learnings of what you had at the, the two polar extremes of thesis and antithesis. If all of that doesn't make any sense, don't worry. I'm going to go to Bible passages that talk about this in just a minute. So, and with that, let me just go to Corinth as a, as a case study, all right? Now, Corinth is, is a church when we first encounter them in, in the letters from Paul. And, and go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. And we probably are safe to say that if Paul came with the plumb line to Corinth, he would be a little bit upset with how far off center that they had become, right? Uh, how far from justified. And here's what he writes. I'm going to read from, let's see what Bible I got here. ES, ESV. So there we go. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Or I think the NIV says what? And you are proud. Right? I'm going to come a little bit closer to this. So I feel like you see me in this at the same time. 
and you are proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. And he, he goes on later even to say, uh, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here's, here's where, where Corinth ends up at, is they, they're off-kilter, off-kilter, off and they are proud. Now, they're not proud that they've got, like, heinous sexual immorality in their ranks. Who would be? Nobody's going to advertise that. But you know why they're proud, most speculate? is because they were so enlightened. They were the kinder, gentler church. We're so evolved. Thanks, Paul, for planting us. But, you know, your ways, ah, we've kind of grown past those right now. And we have this more enlightened approach to being able to help someone through their sin. That's the place where they have gotten to. Uh, and Paul comes to them and gives them a rather stern rebuke. And then they, of course, respond. Now, what's interesting is that the response doesn't bring them back to here. But the best kind of connection that we have biblically to where they end up on a similar situation is, flip over to 2 Corinthians 2, and, and there may be a couple letters in between, but we've got what we've got, and the Holy Spirit gave it to us, so we're running with it. But what happens is that pendulum swings all the way over to here. And we're going to read in, in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, starting in verse uh, 6. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, majority is enough. So he's talking about an offending brother. Is it the same offending brother that was kind of doing the dirty with the, 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 the you know, father, mother, you know, whatever that weirdness was going on over there? We don't know. And maybe it is the same offending brother who he's now saying, all right, the punishment is enough. Uh, or perhaps it's just another situation where the churches have to practice some sort of discipline to be able to help out in an ugly situation. Doesn't matter. This is not about that brother. This is about the community and the corporate culture. So the corporate culture was, we're so enlightened, we're so proud, we got it going on. But now... They, they have kind of responded, and boy, have they, so that Paul is now saying the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And look what he has to say now. So I beg you and to reaffirm your love for him. Wow, what a difference, huh? I mean, they, they, they go from, oh, Paul, you know what? I got this. I got this. We're enlightened. We're, we're going to do it our way. And now they're, they're like, whoa, let's, let's do what Paul said. But, but now they're kind of overdoing it to the point where it seems as though there's harshness going on, where Paul's like, okay, take your foot off the, the, the boy's neck and time to, time to reaffirm your, your, your love for the guy. Right? I mean, thesis, antithesis. But what is the synthesis of all of this? What is the proper response communally when there's someone in sin. How do we kind of get to that place? What does the Bible show us? Now, here's what's interesting. Anybody who's ever done a pretty good study of 2 Corinthians knows that Paul takes a rather long detour theologically 
at verse 8, and he doesn't come back again from that detour until chapter 7. Some of the richest theological material in our Bible are, are chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, and, and praise God that he took that detour, and that the Holy Spirit led him down that detour. But if you were to follow his train of thought, where it picks up again, the natural place where everybody who, who writes a commentary on this brings it back to is they, they take it off a, in, in chapter 2, and then they bring it right back in chapter 7, around verse 8. Let's go ahead and look at, then, what he says in verse 8. And this actually gives us the synthesis of the community and how communally your culture should be when you've got sin among you. Now, this is a passage with which we're familiar, but you've viewed it as an individual passage. So we'll, we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. So verse 8, For even if I made you so grieve by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Of course, in the NIV, we know this to be godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, all throughout. Verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So what is that kind of synthesis state for that corporate culture for the church of Corinth? Well, it's not over here being proud of their enlightened approach to being soft on sin. And it's not over here where take your foot off the guy's neck, please. But it's over here at the synthesis of it. And Paul's trying to guide their corporate culture of how they respond to sin to what? Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is actually the appropriate response to someone who is in sin. And just as a side note, you may have someone that you're trying to help in your ministry. And how do I help them? Well, the appropriate response while they're in sin is that you should have earnestness and eagerness. That you should have alarm and indignation. That you should have concern and longing and fear and a readiness for, for vindication in, in all of these matters. That's the appropriate response. That's the culture of your campus ministry that's going to help people to really come down a path of righteousness in the end. Um, but but you, you probably are thinking, yeah, but isn't that how I respond to sin? Well, because of our individual lens, yes, we think of this passage as a passage about how do I respond when I'm in sin? It is actually in context, chiefly a passage about how the church responds to someone in sin. And if the church has that kind of response to sin, it will help the brother as well as the church to, to come to repentance and firmness and salvation. Now, does that mean that we can't use that as we're trying to help someone to repent? Well, if it's the appropriate response for the church, it's the appropriate response for me when I'm in sin. Right. Right? So the principles are, are, are clearly ones that transfer over. It's, it's everybody's response because it's God's response to sin. And if we want to have the appropriate response to sin that leads to repentance, then yes, it's more than appropriate to be able to use that. So let's, let's talk about some examples of communal, <laughs> communal sin of, of, of different, different parts. So the, now, communal sin is not like individual sin because it's, it's not as, sometimes it's fuzzier because it's your spirit of the group. It's the ethos. It's the esprit de corps. 
And you know, think about even what, what Jesus says when he comes to the churches of, of Revelation. You don't love the way you used to love, he says to Ephesus. You've become too tolerant. I think he says that to Theatira. Uh, and then, of course, we know good old Laodicea. You've become lukewarm. And in, 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 in all of these cases, it's, it's not as though he's saying, you stole that $17, now repentance is to return it. So that's the hard part about communal sin, is much of communal sin is more vague, I, I guess is a, a way to put it, um, than, than, than individual sin. And, and so we, we've got to kind of try to put our finger on in, in what way have we become kind of worldly like um, Laodicea? Have we become tolerant like Theatira? Have we kind of lost the edge of our love uh, like Ephesus? Uh, is it, I, I forget which one it is now, I think it was um, uh, maybe Pergamum, but where they had a reputation for being alive, but you know what? You're really dead, so wake up. Your, your campus ministry needs to wake up. I mean, that's the communal sin. That's the communal dysfunction. And if, if you've gotten to a place where you're no longer radically countercultural, Acts 2.42 going on, well, then I think you've got to then be able to try to identify and be okay with identifying what the communal sin might be. But having identified it, you, you then actually need to really practice communal godly sorrow. And... And the, the best thing that I've seen to be able to put this into practice, and this is a super practical approach right now, but there are four common elements to bringing a culture into a, a place of repentance. And, and you, you maybe go back to your campus ministry and say, you know what, I, I think we're this or that or that, and they're like, well, well who are you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really difficult at times to really ha help to have people's eyes open. And the, the very thing that... Um, that is difficult is getting the ball rolling to, to actually help everybody realize that we've become acclimated to a culture that we would have been horrified by five, ten years ago. And the, the way that you're, you're able to kind of get the ball rolling to get corporate culture changing is often, interestingly, not from within. But you've got now a whole bunch of connections with other people by virtue of being here. Yeah. And, and you guys being here need to take advantage of these connections because in these kind of four common elements that I've seen throughout the Bible that bring about culture change or communal repentance is number one, it is an outsider. It, it always begins with an outsider. Think of John the Baptist coming to Israel. He didn't just kind of pop up from amongst them. He first was taken out and consecrated. You know, in a sense, he had to kind of reset his calibration of what it is to be the people of God. When the northern tribes needed to be reproved by God, he often sent a prophet from the southern tribes with a different culture, a different expectation, a different mindset to be able to go and, and do this very thing. You, you've probably all heard of the kind of the, the theory that if you put a, a frog in a kettle to try to burn it you to burn it to cook it um or burn it too i don't know how you like your frogs cooked but but if you're trying to cook a frog you don't just get the kettle boiling and then you drop the frog in the kettle because the frog will jump right out he's got the ability to do that he can you know kind of just use those god-given flipper things that he's got and out, out he goes from the kettle but 
if you put the frog in the kettle and it's you know kind of nice warm water, you swim around the kettle, and then you just turn up the heat on your stove, that frog, supposedly, we could try this maybe during lunch, uh, <laughs> that frog would acclimate and acclimate and acclimate. And even though the temperature now you know, is you know, climbing up into the 150 range uh, where you can cook chicken, uh, it, it, he, he would be acclimated uh, in, in the midst of all of that. I'm sorry if I'm referring to frogs as he. I know it's a very sexist thing on my part, but uh, <laughs> assume that I just mean kind of, you know, all, all frogs in general, frog goats, right? But, but that frog, that frog would, would acclimate, even if there's a whole bunch of frogs in there. They'd all be hanging out, and, you know, and, and, and as the temperature rises, you know, there they are, kind of doing the backstroke, saying to one another, you smell chicken? It smells like chicken in here. Um, but if we took another frog, and that water's up at 155 degrees, and we drop that frog in with those other frogs, you know, happy as can be, and drop that frog in there, that frog would be like, what are you guys doing? We're going to become stew if we stay like this. This is crazy. And, and the frog would jump out of the kettle. Yeah. That, that's the importance of not having someone who has been in your ministry acclimated because they're breathing the same air. They're reading the same texts. They're laughing at the same jokes. They're pulling back from the same opportunities as, as you are. Uh, and... It's, it's, just, it's just too difficult. So that's the value. You got, you got some other folks here to be able to have new eyes to be able to, to come in. And in all, all the great uh, reforms throughout the books of, of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles is a great study of this, by the way, and we don't have time to go through, but you can look at Asa's reform, Jehoshaphat's reform, Josiah's reform, uh, one after another after another. You know how it always begins? With an outsider, with a prophet. And even if that prophet is an insider, what God does is he takes him out, consecrates him, that is, sets him apart, makes him countercultural. He countercultures that prophet, and then he's like, all right, finally, I kind of cleaned your brain out a little bit and cleared up your eyes. Now go back in, tell me what you see now, and, and see how that goes. And, 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 back in, and, and, and then uh, they're able to kind of really be able to bring it. But followed by that, the second element is Leaders who respond with godly sorrow. Jehoshaphat, Asa, uh, Manasseh later, even interestingly, if you can believe that. Josiah. All, all of these leaders throughout the, um, the nation of Israel, uh, they end up responding with godly sorrow when the prophet comes to them. Uh, Hezekiah. Well, one after another, we, we see this humility and godly sorrow on the part of the leader. Uh, and it, it really is paramount. I mean, God invented leadership. Uh, he invented strong leadership. So a lot does actually end up being kind of guided by the leader in these things. And that's if you're that leader, well then, amen. Pray, pray for, for humility in the, in the midst of all of this. Um, but if you're not the leader, well, then be, be praying even now for the humility of your leader to be able to have clear eyes, to be able to receive the word of a prophet, of any outsider that would be able to come in and be able to say what's what uh, with that. But then thirdly, and this is an interesting one, is a solemn assembly. And we, we see examples of these solemn assemblies throughout the Old Covenant. Uh, we don't as much in the New Covenant um, other than Jesus just calling the churches of Revelation to a communal repentance. And we can only assume that, that what does occur there is that they decide 
to really communally re repent in, in the fashion that is necessary. But let me just, for the sake of time, take you to one quick one. Go over to Joel. Joel, yeah. I'm going to start in um, in verse 13. Oh, Joel 1, sorry. Joel's not easy to find, but you can do it. All right, here we go. <laughs> Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. So the prophet is first addressing the leaders. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a, a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as the destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. I'm going I'm to read on again in a minute here because he picks up with the same, same lament um, in chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Here's communal repentance. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. I love this part. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Just like, hey, you're on your honeymoon? We're having a solemn assembly. This is a mandatory meeting. Maybe you've had that, like, you know, for your RA. has called a mandatory meeting for, for, for the hall. Well, that's kind of the solemn assembly. Solemn assembly is God's mandatory meeting. And, and of course, every one of those meetings is, is always where... You um, have the person that needs to be there the most doesn't come, right? That, but here's, here's the encouraging part, is I have been part of solemn assemblies all over the world. I mean, th this has been the case in London, in Kiev, in Bangalore, India, uh, regions of L.A., northern uh, California, most states in the U.S., different churches have, have really gotten after, our church is in a spot where we're at that point where we need to corporately repent. And so because I had written a book that inc incorporated some ideas about corporate repentance, they've called me and either I've gone there or, or we've just talked over the phone to work this out. But I can tell you this, there's been no experience of the Holy Spirit more real to me than these solemn assemblies. Where I was like, oh my goodness, God is real. Like, holy smokes, this is incredible. 
I'll tell you a quick story about the Dayton Church. The Dayton Church was going to close its doors, and uh, they were dwindling down to just a few people, Dayton, Ohio. And, uh, and, and they decided that, you know what, why not? Let's, let's see if this guy, talking about me, uh, since he's driving through town, we'll, we'll you know, ha have a listen to him one, one way or another. And, and so I go to meet with the, the leaders of the church, and I'm going to meet them at some sort of a restaurant. And you know how normally when you walk into a restaurant, you can spot a group of disciples like that, yeah. right? Because they all seem like they're like drunk or something somewhere yeah. over there. It's like, oh, <laughs> but they're not. Uh, well, I walk in, and really, I mean, there were like 10 people there from the, the Dayton church. And I was like, I don't know where they are. I mean, that, that's kind of the spirit of that group. And then when I kind of turn around the corner and I actually see them, they were basically all there with arms folded, with kind of like, all right, so we, we decided to gather. Show us what you got. Right? Come on. Come on. Repentance boy. Do, 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 some, do, do what you got to do here. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This is a tough nut to crack here. But then we just began to go over passage after passage. We ended up spending hours there that night of going power. And, and, and what, what ultimately happened is they, they had decided over the course of the, of the next five weeks, for, for the following week, to explain to the church where they had come to, how they had been, you know, if a plumb line was lowered, what, what they would really look like. Uh, but also where it is that God needed them to go. Not in their own words. They just went to the book of Acts, as so many of us always do, to be able to see what that looks like. And the, the church agreed. And, and so what they began to work on is, for the first week, they worked simply on individual repentance. But that meant actually being in one another's lives, being okay with being used by the Holy Spirit to reprove one another, to, to expose one another. And they did. And they're like, well, we're either going to shut the doors or we're going to do this. And, and, and that really did happen over the course of that next week. Then they decided, let's go after the first and smallest corporate entity we have in our church, and that is families or households. And so they did. They got together as households, and here's the difference between personal repentance and corporate repentance. After you've dealt with your own personal repentance and you come together, you now don't confess personal sin at a solemn assembly. You confess personal responsibility for the corporate sin. Right, so here, here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, we, my, my church as well, we, we had a, a, a time where we had to go through this. And we had become kind of, we just kind of fallen into malaise. We kind of lost our first love. We lost our zeal, lost our edge. And, and in the midst of that, we came together and, and I got before the group. And I didn't confess that, you know, I, I yelled at my kids. Maybe I did. I don't know. I mean, maybe I did yell at my kids. But that, that was dealt with, you know, some, somewhere else. What I confessed was how I contributed to the corporate culture. How did I contribute to that? And, and I had to confess that, you know what, because nobody was really so eager about doing stuff, I used it as an opportunity for me to be lazy. And that's fine if people don't want to get discipled. Well, then you know what? I'm going to watch a little bit more Netflix. And, and this was years ago when we were going through this. I even actually con confessed, I was like, you know what, it got so bad that I was at Blockbuster. Do you guys know what Blockbuster is? It's a, it's a store, and they had like videotapes, it was on a wall. It was the strangest you know, cultural custom that we had back years ago. But anyway, I'm, I'm, in, this, I'm in this video store, and, and, um, and, I, and I'm looking at the, the rack of movies and talking to my wife and, and realized, 
we had seen every movie worth watching in the entire place. And, and that's when I realized, honey, what have we become? Like, what did we sign up for, and, and what is it that we've become? And what are we allowing our church to become as well with, with, with something like this? And it was a kind of a you know, glass of cold water in the face of like, wow, wow. Uh, others, others confessed how they had grown suspicious of their Bible talk leaders. Uh, others, could, I mean, all sorts of things. But in Dayton, you know, they were in a really rough spot. And, and some of the people that we were afraid of the most of their confessions were, the, I mean, so guided by the Holy Spirit, so just exacting, articulate about how they had contributed to the corporate culture. Again, they weren't confessing, I stole $15. They were confessing that, you know what, I don't, I don't come to midweek, and w when I talk to others about it, I encourage them not to as well. I, don't, I mean, it was everybody talked with great specificity and accuracy about how they had really done a number on the corporate culture. And here's the, the, the encouraging part about this is the, the people that are most marginalized, they think, and are, are fear of most being judged, don't feel that way at the solemn assembly because they realize that the leaders actually take the bulk of the responsibility. And it is the leaders who, who do take the bulk of the responsibility of, you know what, I, I lost vision for you. I don't have faith in, in, in most of you anymore. I recalibrated my expectations of how the Holy Spirit was going to shape and use you. And that's a, that's a filthy compromise on, on what I, I should really have as a leader in God's church. And, I mean, but there's that kind of amazing insight that, that would go on, and, and you could only just chalk it up to the Holy Spirit. Like, wow, how everybody was able to do this. And in, in the end of that, we, we actually did it in smaller groups by just simply all praying to God together. We confessed to God and to one another, prayed to God uh, for, for this one after another after another, and we, we asked God for his forgiveness and for his blessing as, as we resolved to move forward. Now, that, that's the, the solemn assembly, which is your chance to express godly sorrow. And if everything that I just described really is godly sorrow towards the communal dysfunction that we, every single one of us created. And it's very important to articulate. Every one of us has played a part in this. There's not one of us who has not played a part in this. To use the family model, uh, let's say our family gets off kilter. We've got two sons that are off and older and out of the house already, but uh, a son and a daughter that are still there. Let's say our family gets all kind of nasty in, in our culture. Well, it, it might be that my, my daughter confesses that, you know what, I just think that, that, that you guys are the most embarrassing parents on earth, and so are you, my brother, and, you know, honestly, I don't even like, you know, to, to have you drop me off at school or to be around you uh, because of the embarrassment that you bring me. And my son is like, you know what, I, I just don't care. I just want to play video games, and, and all you guys are are an impediment to me playing video games. And, 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 and you know, and mine might be, you know what, I've been, I've been harsh with you guys, and I've taken shortcuts, and I've not trained you up. I've ignored the idea of exasperating. And my, my wife might say, you know what, because you, you've not been you know, strong with the kids. I've decided to be strong. Then you become Disneyland dad. And then you can you hear, but every, all four of us contributed to the corporate culture of that family. And then we would need to confess. Again, not that I, uh, I, I don't know, look twice at a girl. No, it's, what, it, it's how I contributed to that corporate culture. So you're confessing personal contribution or personal responsibility for the corporate sin. Not necessarily confessing 
personal sin, so to speak. That should happen. I'm not saying you don't do this. That should happen, but that should be a prelude. But then when you come together, having done that, now you confess personal responsibility for the corporate sin. That is then expressed through godly sorrow at the solemn assembly. And then finally, what, what, what happens is you then have a chance to renew the covenant. In Dayton on Saturday, we confessed all day long. It was amazing. The Cincinnati church sent up people to babysit the kids. We took seriously, hey, you got the nursing mom, get her in here. Bridegroom, you're coming too. This is a man. Everybody came, everybody but one person in the entire Dayton church, a church that had three people show up for midweeks, maybe, maybe 11, but, but I mean, not much more than that ever. Now they had everybody there, and it wasn't that many people. It was like 40 people, but everybody came. But then how did we renew the covenant? Well, the next day, we took communion in a worthy manner. And here's the beauty that we get to do anytime we want to renew the covenant, is that we we are the body of Christ. And what are we doing when we take the body of Christ, but, but really proclaiming the body of Christ? And when we take that body and that blood in a worthy manner, that's a powerful way to make sure that we renew the covenant. We did that in Dayton. We've done it in a lot of other places. Other places have done other things. They've written up um, their, their, their sin or written up their personal responsibilities. They made a bonfire out of it, and they, they, they sang together even as it was all, all gone. Uh, again, many take communion. But this communion then, one after another, people got up and, and shared about not only where they were, but how excited about how they're going to contribute to where we're going to be as the body of Christ. Yeah. It began with the plumb line. It began with the scriptures of what is the church of God. And then, and then everybody began to contribute exactly how it is that they were going to now be part of the beautiful change of that. And then we took the, the communion, recognizing that we have communion. We have oneness with one another. That's why there's one loaf, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 says. But then also that we are one with Christ. That, that we walk as Christ walked, we love as Christ loved, that we will be his hands and his feet. And we proclaim that by renewing the covenant. And then it was so powerful in taking the blood and taking the cup to realize that despite all that we've done a number on the culture, and even though we've done a terrible number on the body of Christ, through the blood of Christ, it's all washed away. It's not held over us. We're not in any cosmic doghouse. We have nothing but the unfettered opportunity to run free and forward in a daring new direction for the sake of Jesus and to be the body of Christ in Dayton, Ohio, or in Hampton Roads, Virginia, or in Atlanta, Georgia, or wherever it is that you may be. But to be able to do that on your campus, no longer bound by, by any of the kind of the weirdness or history that you've had because we've taken that communion in a worthy manner. Um, and and the, the way that I think to, to prepare for this is... An, um, I'll, if you go to um, commonwealthacademy.ca and then just look up repentance resources or go to hamptonroadschurch.com and go under resources and look up repentance resources, there is a handout there that prepares everybody in your small group for uh, communal repentance, for, for changing the culture of a small group. Uh, and it's, it's all there and available uh, to you. But... Don't, don't kill yourself in taking notes here because you can download the booklet that has all of this. But let me just conclude with this. One of the, the things that inspired me most was a communal repentance that occurred 110 years ago that I'd read about. And it was in Wales. And in Wales, there was a small group, probably no bigger 
than your Bible talk or your campus ministry. Somewhere around 20, 30 people. Wales at the time had become a, a mining area of Great Britain. And it was the place where kind of like the hardworking, hard-drinking uh, culture was centered in, in that part of the world. And that's what they were known for. Just kind of tough folks. You know, I don't know if you want to go there. It's kind of like rooting for another team and going to watch a Philadelphia Eagles game. Right? I mean, you just don't want to go to Philadelphia if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. Right? It's just not going to go well for you. And the same thing, you, you didn't want to go to Wales. Those are some kind of, you know, hard tack, you know, road hard, put up wet type, type folks that were in that part of the world. Uh, and, and you wanted to watch yourself when you were there. But this small group led by people your age, one woman in that small group stood up and said, this has gone on far too long. I just... I just can't help, and, and she just screamed with all she had, I love Jesus with all my heart, and I don't want to be held back. And then that, that spread to the group, and in, in that group, what they did is one after another, they decided to confess every single sin. And then in renewing their covenant, they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to obey everything the Word of God calls us to do. We're going to respond to every prompting of the Holy Spirit and what he's calling us to do. And we will continue to serve all of this for the common good and not for ourselves. So that began in 1910, I'm sorry, 1905 to 1906. In 1905, in that year, 100,000 people were reported to have converted to Christ. Now, you say, well, what kind of conversions was that? What kind of church was that? I, I don't know, but the London Times has plenty of articles on this. And in reading the London Times, a lot of in interesting stories. For example, David Lloyd George, who was uh, campaigning for prime minister, went to one of the stadiums there in Wales, and his campaign rally was taken over by a spontaneous prayer rally among all the people there that lasted over five hours. <laughs> How does that happen? It started with that small group, but that small group impacted their church. That church impacted then that city. That, that groups of, of, of Christians impacted the entire nation. David Lloyd George wrote back and he said that I went to the, the pubs. You know, you'd have the coal mines, and then right out of the coal mines were all the pubs lined upside. He says, I went to the pubs, and most of them were bemoaning the fact that they couldn't remain in business because the one that I was with had only sold three pence worth of alcohol that night. Wow. Like, that's not just something that, you know, happens because there's some jive false conversion going on. They shut down the pubs of Wells, not through legislation, because nobody had an appetite or an affection for that any longer. Orders to the Bible Society. At the time, the only way you could get Bibles is through the Bible Society. Orders to the Bible Society tripled during those years. And um, the London Times wrote, the only negative to the Wales revival was that productivity at first in the mines, in the coal mines, had decreased. Reason being was all the mules had to be retrained. And the reason why they all had to be retrained is because all the commands that they knew up until that time all involved expletives, profane language. So they would curse at the, at the mules to get them going. And because nobody spoke that way any longer, even in the coal mines, they had to retrain all the mules. Wow. Wow. 
Right? It sounds like Nineveh, right? Like, even the cows were in sackcloth and, and, and ashes from that. But think about this. As, as you repent, as your Bible talk really undergoes radical corporate repentance, where you look like the plumb line to Acts 2.42 again, wow, what joy, what infection, what impact that you begin to have. It's not just your Bible talk, it's your entire campus ministry. Every corner of that campus ministry. And it happens in every corner when you go after real culture change, real corporate repentance, because everyone's involved. It's not just, let's just target these three people. If we can get them on board, maybe we'll be back here. No, everybody ends up being involved. And it's a beautiful infection that carries everyone along. And then finally, in the, in the end, if you really do let the Holy Spirit have his way with you through this entire process, the only natural conclusion is that it won't just end with your campus ministry. Your entire university will undergo a radical cultural change and a radical corporate repentance. It begins small, but it is God's plan and it is God's will. Accept nothing less. Amen. Amen.